0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, we're grateful that in your mercies you've brought us together on this Lord's Day. We all inhabit so many different narratives in this room, stories that are full of life and challenges. And Lord, I don't know what the folks in this room have brought into this room today, but I pray that... In this 30 minutes together, that you'll open our hearts and our minds to perceive the wonders of what you have to teach us in your word. Um, give us hearts, O Lord, that are filled with gratitude, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, I we, we have at Beeson every year, this may have been the last year, I don't know, but ev- every year at where I where I teach, we do um, basically kind of graduate Field day, not graduate school field day or something like that, where we take a day out of class and we have a lecture in the morning and then we go to chapel and then we eat together. And then supposedly all the students are supposed to go and do some sort of play together. I've got a colleague that will take them on a bird walk around campus. And um, <laughs> I used to throw baseball out in the quad. But, you know, yet this past Tuesday, I just left campus. Don't tell anybody. Um, uh, but um but we do this every year, and, and, and this past Tuesday, we, ha- we had a lecture from a colleague of mine named Stefana Lang on um, what she entitled the, noon, the Noonday Demon, um, which is the septuagint, the Greek translation in Psalm 91, that I think we have something like, and don't be afraid of the scourge that will strike you at day. I think that's what we have in most of our versions. But the Septuagint translation um, goes to something like the the, the noonday demon. Um, and in and, and this lecture, she talked about this, this ancient malady that was really particular to the monastic tradition called acedia. Um, and it was a term, I have to be honest, that I, I wasn't all that familiar with. So I was very intrigued by her lecture. Um, and she engaged in a sort of detailed way of of Pontus, who was a fifth century monk, no, actually a fourth century monk, um, who was a student of the Cappadocians in the east, and, and then he ended up becoming a monk and wrote a lot of practical works on what it meant to live life in, in, out, really out in the desert. Um, you notice this today, even in our reading that we had in Luke. Um, something about the the, the Beelzebub going out into the waterless region. There there was a concept in the ancient world that that you met the demons out in the wilderness. Um, And this is one of the reasons why you see the people of God having to wander in the wilderness. There's a testing going on there. It's also why I think in the day of Yom Kippur, in Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, they send one goat, one goat is killed, and that goes into the Holy of Holies, the blood, and another goat is sent out into the wilderness, and here's the the technical term, to meet Azazel there. We have no idea what Azazel is, but my hunch is it might be some sort of wilderness demon um that in other words now the the sin of the people is sent back to its proper location in the demonic realm right so it goes out to the to the wilderness um we see Jesus going out into the wilderness to 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 and to be tempted by the devil and and it's one of the reasons why the monks went into the wilderness as well um and so here you have this notion of ascidia, which is had been tr- uh, was part of the eight deadly thoughts that originally that then in time became part of the, what we know as the tradition of the seven deadly sins, and I think unfortunately, acedia got wrapped up into the sin of sloth in the seven deadly sins, but really what acedia is, and it's very hard to translate, but acedia is listlessness, um, indifference, a lack of energy about life, um, not caring I think when you, when it comes to what you might feel in your vocation or your job, what God's called you to do in this world with your hands and your heart and your mind, um, when you feel purposeless in it anymore, or that it doesn't really have any meaning or significance, and all of a sudden you become indifferent to your work, um, and the energy that once fueled it is now a kind of memory of the past, um, th- this is this was a, was a real challenge. You can imagine in a monastery that was driven by a daily routine that was rather boring, and that was assumed. I mean, you had a routine that sort of worked on and on and on. Um, and and in, in listening to my colleague talk about this, you know, and I've I've given some thought to this actually because I, I do believe that there is a bona fide mid-career kind of crisis thing that happens to men and women. Especially in their 40s, there's a lot of work that's been done on this, especially in the Western world. Um, A professor from MIT wrote a book on this called uh, "Mid-Career Crisis," um, where he talked about the challenges as a a professor um, of spending sort of the early part of your career where you work towards something, right? So you think, and and all of us have this in our various various roles, but you work towards something. Uh, you have to go get a degree, and then you need to do some publishing, and then you need to uh, get a job, and then you got to advance in rank. And then at some point in time, all this sort of work that you've done, getting the airplane off the tarmac to try to get it to 30,000 feet, that takes about 20 years. But at some point in time, that plane levels off. And when it levels off, and now you're just given to the work and not to the progress of the work. Yes? I don't know. All are you guys searching around there's a class right here and there's have you looked upstairs yet up. sorry y'all there's there's a couple classes going up there no worries um so once the plane actually kind of levels off and and you, then then i think you that happens kind of in your 40s then all of a sudden and this is what the mit professor said um, in, in the book that I read, uh, the articles that I read that he wrote in Harvard uh, Business Review, he said at some point in time, you know, and especially in your 40s, you have to wrestle with moving away from finding joy in telic activities. That is activities that are moving toward a, toward a certain end, and then beginning to find joy in what he called atelic activities, um, that the, like family and and, and and say, for example, for me, I'm a teacher, not just in where I'm going with my teaching, but in teaching. I mean, I know that sounds really strange to say, like, isn't that obvious? But it actually is not all that obvious, because I think the aspiration and the ambition of our vocation can often get confused with the thing itself. And these things kind of get blurred in such a way that I think, in your, at least for a lot of people in their 40s, they have to sort through, and that's why a lot of data says that once people kind of press through that and then get into their 50s, that the 50s are really kind of a remarkable decade. I can't wait. It's coming, right? <laughs> uh, so um, so my the point of all of that is, when I was listening to my colleague talk about acedia, which was a term that I wasn't actually familiar with, and she mentioned in passing um, this book by Kathleen Norris called Acedia Acedia. Uh, and me, and it was something on on writing, marriage, and something or the other. Have any of you read Kathleen Norris's book? It, I, I've spent all weekend in it. <laughs> I, I couldn't break away. You didn't like it. It's kind of hard to just not put down. That's how I felt. I I couldn't put it down. Um, and it, it's it's really it's it's it, for me. I've just it, it's it's at kind of a good time. Um, but she's talking about these particular issues about acedia, which often can get confused with depression, but I think they need to be kept distinct on some level. Um, and she's talking about this sort of what, what, at least in her own life, about the challenges of marriage, the challenges as a writer, um, coming to terms with indifference. Um, I don't care. If, and it's you know, what the monks called the noonday demon. And the reason why I mention all of that is because the ways in which I think Kathleen Norris and a lot of the church fathers, and and I'll say this as an aside, I don't always know how to move from monastic instruction into... Our world. I, I don't think that's an easy move, by the way. Um, I, 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 it, it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance for me when I read a lot of these books about, you know, becoming a, a kind of Benedictine daddy or something like that. Like I don't, I don't that, that's a hard thing for me to process, um, and, and my Protestant side starts to come out real fast too because I think. You know some of, some of these some of these monastic and you can read it, but some of these monastic instructions are very um, self inward in other words, we find grace by turning internal in our own selves and create and, and cleaning up our internal castle that 's how we kind of move into grace. That stuff makes me break out in chicken pox, all right so I just say that um, but I think there 's some wisdom to be learned from this, and one of the things that I think a lot of the church fathers, and, and again, as the reformers, as I understand them, would receive this, would say, is here's one of the primary antidotes to acedia. Praise and thanksgiving. This is why I want to get into this for the next three weeks. N- not just for you all, but for me, for me, right? I mean, this is going to be for all of us. Because I think it's thanksgiving and gratitude and, 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 and lips of praise... That force us, in some sense, outside of ourselves to take account of what it is that God has done for us in the gifts that he has given us. And that itself is a kind of spiritual um, antiseptic all right, to the danger of, of the noonday demon. Um, so I want to spend these next three weeks together looking at various praises. I'm doing one that I spent some time with because I preached on this in chapel a few weeks ago, so we're going to do it today. Um, but, but next week we'll probably do Psalm 102 and Psalm 103. That's at the request of my wife. Um, and then the week after that, I don't know yet, but we'll, we'll find that later. But before we get into all this, I wanted you to see a couple of things before we dive into Romans. Um, Psalm 24 tells us, I think, something that's central to the identity and the character of praise in the Christian life. And this, by the way, you'll see how this matches up with our prayer book tradition in a really good way. Here you have a King David telling us, and I'll just sort of lay it out for you, that praise is both something that we do and something that we are. And that's important because I think we tend to think of praise primarily in terms of the activity of our, of our vocal cords or our hearts. Some kind of locution, some kind of speech act, whether it's even in, in our minds or we're actually articulating. We tend to think of praise as an activity. And the psalmist wants you to know that praise is that, and it also um, flows from your being, actually who we are. So, so listen to the language. The earth is the Lord's, he tells us in these first verses, and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell therein. For he's founded it upon the seas and he's established it upon the rivers. That's the psalmist there praising with his lips. But then look at the very next verse. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such is the generations of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So do you see the juxtaposition here? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's the activity itself of praise. What, what we do with our lips. And then right on the heels of that, King David says, and who is in the presence of the Lord to offer these kinds of praises? Those who keep their hands clean, those who don't give themselves to falsehood. And he goes through this litany of lists that correspond to the character of our being. And I think this says something that, or at least lines up substantially with the prayer that we pray in morning prayer regularly here. Let us praise you not only with our lips we say this all the time around here but also in our our lives so that we see again that the horizontal that the vertical and the horizontal as in the ten commandments so intersect with one another that i don't i can't be loving god and not loving my neighbor and i can't be loving my neighbor without it being properly rooted in in the love of god Um, and i think about this as, as an aside from the standpoint of the whole book of proverbs and think about the whole book of Proverbs that's borrowing capital all over the place from the ancient world of wisdom. You might, this might come as a, sh- as a shock to you, but there are Proverbs that Solomon gave us in the book of Proverbs that are almost carbon copies from the, from the wisdom of an Egyptian uh, king named Aminamope. I mean, you can, you can look at these and you're like, oh my goodness, and, and Aminamope is a lot older than Solomon. Um, so here I think what you see is Solomon didn't mind borrowing capital from anywhere that he could borrow capital if it if it was wise. But how is the whole of Proverbs structured? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So it's the fear of the Lord that's the, that's the frame by which all of wisdom is engaged, even the wisdom that you borrow capital from the surrounding world. I mean, I think about this, uh, well, okay, I'm not going to chase that rabbit. All right, so I'll leave that. I'll leave that. One other thing that I want you to see before I dive into Romans is Jonah. Because this just, recently this stood out to me in a a class. Um, And I've read this so many times, but this was one time where I thought, oh, there's something going on here. Uh, Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. So this is at least the way in which the the narrative is presented. This is Jonah's prayer from the belly of the whale. or, Or I should say the fish, if you're... Uh, fastidious about that, Um, in the belly of the fish, um, which tells us that Jonah's ability to do poetry in a a whale's belly is very impressive, and not everyone can pull that off, I don't think, Um, but listen to what he says here, um, and I can't read the whole poem, but I want you to to see verse 7, 8, and 9. Because this is a kind of window into what I think is a large theological matter in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Now that's worth talking about, but we you know this term remembering here um, is a covenantal term. This is a term that finds itself located somewhere near the center of God's relating to His people. God remembers His people. That's God's commitment to His covenant with His people. And we remember Him. That's our commitment to having no other God but Him. Okay, So you see this taking place right here. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now notice verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I want to read. This, press into these words here because they're, they're, I think they're really important. Those who regard um, vain idols, or I, I like this translation, the idols of nothingness. All right. In other words, he, I think Jonah and the prophets are slow to provide the language of being to idols. They... they, 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 they um, They're not not—they're not real in the sense that God is real. They pander and they plunder the goodness of God and distort it into something other. And that's why he doesn't even talk about them in the sense of true being. They're they're not real. Um, Verse 9, But I, uh, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. So those who regard the emptiness of idols, they forsake what it means to be faithful to the Lord in steadfastness and loyalty. And what's the counter that Jonah offers here? This is so fascinating to me. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. So do you notice here the comparing and the contrasting? You have those that are giving themselves to the speculative role of worshiping idols, nothingness. And in doing so, they have forsaken their own covenant fidelity, their idolaters. And the counterpoint to that is what? The voice of thanksgiving. Um, you'll see this in the New Testament as well. This might come as a bit of a surprise to you, but I, but I think there's a, a lot of evidence to, to support the, the little statement I'm about to make right now. And, and that is this. The, the opposite of idolatry in the Bible is thanksgiving. It's its antipode. It's its counterpart. Thanksgiving is the opposite of idolatry. Um, I was meeting with someone recently, someone that I care deeply about, and we were having coffee, and he was sort of pressing in. He's, he's the kind of friend that can, is allowed to kind of press in and touch on soulish matters. And um, and he asked me this sort of very direct question. He was sensing things, and he asked me this very direct, what, direct question. Mark, are you praising enough? Boy, it was a pointed question. I hate it when people do that to me, by the way. <laughs> uh, but it was a direct question, and, and it really... Because what I mean the, the wheels of life are spinning. And he was asking me a question, Are you creating the space for praise? Because where there's no praise, I think this is what Jonah's saying, where there's no praise, that empty void will naturally be filled with idolatry. If the space is created, it is going to be filled. And it's going to be filled with an idolatrous tendency. And don't think, of course, you're all sophisticated in here enough to know that I'm not talking about little figurines that we're going to bow down to in the backyard. I'm talking about all the other things that we pet and we nurse that we think are going to bring us ultimate salvation. Remember Martin Luther. Luther said both God and an idol are defined in the same ways. That which I put my faith in and that which I put my affection on. Both those two make both God and an idol. And so here you see Jonah telling us something, and I think the Bible does as well. It's one of the reasons why Paul, it seems like in every letter, he's signing these things off by saying, "Just remember, keep, you know, rejoice always, Uh, be thankful." As the chains rattle at Paul's feet from his prison cell as he writes some of these letters, be thankful, because the opposite of thankfulness is is idolatry, and where thanksgiving isn't present. Then the void is going to, going to be filled. So with that said, I think, and again, this is a, this is a challenge to me. All right. It's a challenge to all of us. Um, to do what the old hymn that I don't think is in our Anglican hymnal, but I know some of you know this one, right? To count your many blessings, name them one by one, right? Because the counting of our blessings and the naming them one by one as an offering of praise to the Lord is a big fat kick in the knee of our idolatrous tendencies. And here's the other thing, and I am going to go to Romans, but here's the other part. When we're thankful, um, and and this is where I get a little bit nervous about the monks sometimes, but when we're thankful, it necessarily forces us to turn a gaze away from the interiority of our own selves. In other words, the the echo chamber of our own thinking, of our own self-doubt, which again, we're all riddled with in our own ways. But thanksgiving forces us to do Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills, knowing where my help comes from. It's not a lifting of my eyes to see myself in a new way, although maybe that's part of it, so I don't want to talk about that. But it's lifting my eyes to the hills so that my eyes are turned again to the Lord and what the Lord has done for me. And again, there, there are so many sort of psychological dimensions to this that I'm not even touching on, and it's beyond my pay grade. I'm thinking on a very sort of pedestrian, sidewalk level. That in the cacophony of our own hearts and the disorientation of our own spiritual being, that often, and the Bible shows us this all throughout the Psalms, that often the reorientation from disorientation takes place by the instrument of thanksgiving and praise. It's, it's central. And so I wanted to look at one quickly with you this morning. Do we even have time? Sure we do. Why not? Romans chapter 11 Because this one was forced on me recently, but it's got its fangs into me. Um, And we could talk about the context of Romans 9-11 to for a great deal of time. Let me just go ahead and set it up for you a little bit. I do think Romans 9, 10, and 11 may be some of the hardest chapters in all of the Bible. um, And I don't mean this in any sort of cute way. Um, But Romans 9, 10, 11, come to us in such a way that you're you're tracking Paul's argument. Romans 9, got it. Romans 10, think I've got it. Romans 11, I don't have it anymore. That's kind of, at least that's been my own sort of process of thinking, okay, I get what Paul's doing here. I can hold it together. He just threw me a big curveball in Romans 11, and it all centers around two big questions. Number one, who are Abraham's genuine offspring? Jew and Gentile is a big question. And what's the future for Israel? If Israel is the elect of God, and they have in mass, not all, but in large mass, rejected their Messiah, then what promise is there for their future? And if there's not a promise for their future, how can we as Gent This is the unsated part of, I think, Paul's argument. But how can we Gentiles have any faith in the faithfulness of God? If he's casting off his people, going on to something new. Is God fickle? Is he capricious? Does he change his mind on these kinds of things? Does God choose people in relation and then dump them along the side of the road for the next best thing that's around, all these Gentiles out here? That's the big question that Paul is wrestling with in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And he's doing so in such a way that is a product of his apostolic grief. Paul is, and again, Romans 9-11 to has been controversial chapters for the doctrine of election, by the way, a long time in the Reformed tradition, and all the way back to Aquinas and Augustine as well. So there's a lot of theological issues in Romans 9-11 that continue to get batted around. Predestination, election, the biggies, right? Um, And I think we completely miss the intent of Romans 9-11 if we don't recognize that Paul is in apostolic grief. I mean, think Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I would let myself be accursed. This is Paul being the new Moses on the far side of the golden calf encounter in Exodus 32, where Moses says, take me, not them. And now Paul is being Moses, Moses-like in Romans 9. Take me, Lord. If the damnation of my soul will be for the salvation of my people, let it happen. Paul is grieving over the fact that his people, according to the flesh, the Israelites, have not rejected, have not identified their Messiah. They've not seen what's happened in the kingdom announcement of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So this this is big stuff for Paul. It's significant for him. And he moves through all of this and he gets to Romans chapter 11. And let me read to you the hymn and then back up into it. Here's the hymn, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's the question. What is the catalyst for Paul's praise, his doxology, his thanksgiving here at the end of Romans chapter 11 after three very tightly argued theological chapters all driven by his own apostolic grief? You want, you're ready for the verse that launches him into it? It's going to come as a surprise. did to me. Verse 32. Let's see if this makes you want to sing a song. For God has consigned. That's a nice translation, I think. I think the old King James says, God has shut up all people to disobedience. CSB is imprisoned. God, uh, for God is imprisoned. Is that, what one what, what is that? CSV? That's the, what? Oh, that, yes, yes, yes. Imprisoned. That, I like that. Um, shut up, imprisoned, consigned all to disobedience. Why? So that he could have mercy on all. Now, And and again, plumbing the depths of everything that Paul is saying here is... I mean, I'm, I'm still wrestling with it. But what comes to us, I think, in verse 32 is really an instantiation of bad news. In other words, all humanity, Jew and Gentile, are all enslaved, imprisoned, consigned to disobedience. They're shut up unto themselves. They have no way to take the key and unlock the prison door and get themselves out. The Gentiles can't do it according to their wisdom and ingenuity. And the Jews can't do it according to their keeping of Torah. No one has the ability to get themselves outside of the prison of their own enslavement. God's consigned all of them there and only God has the key. And that's the next part of the verse. And He's done this so that God can show His mercy to all of them. So, and you know this is a big Pauline theme, so that if anyone is standing before God in a state of righteousness, the only thing that they're going to be able to do is boast in what the Lord has done for them. No one's going to show, pull their resume out or their CV and say, look at this, not, all have been consigned, because all God sees is consigned to disobedience. That's who you are. But those who come in Christ, Paul wants both Jew and Gentile to know, those have been shown the mercy by, by, uh, by God. And that, that includes the all. And that right there propels Paul to thanksgiving. This, so, so, it's the gospel. This is gospel news for Paul. It's, and I think this is basic to any discussion of praise and thanksgiving and any discussion about, the, I think, the antidote to acedia or listlessness or indifference is the gospel it's got to be central to this because this is what propels paul into praise i know who god is i know that god has revealed himself to us in his son i recognize that god revealing himself to us in his son is the announcement of the kingdom of god in our midst and by his grace i'm a part of this story i've been brought into this And in the future, Israel will be too again. I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen for Israel in the future too. And because of that, I'm left in a position of praise. I can't connect all the dots. I can't sort through all the particularities of the issues. Paul, by the way, doesn't even unravel some of his own theological arguments. It doesn't go A, B, C, naturally rolls out to E. You want to know what happens for Paul? This is how, at least how I read it. A, B, C, D. Now let's praise because we can't figure the rest out. Right? Um, and I think that's where he's left. I know, I know, I have a certain, uh, a certain handles that I can hold on to, certain pegs that I can put hats on and see how God has revealed himself. But there are some things that are beyond my purview. It's, it's not in my pay grade to understand how God is going to work his providence out in the future. But I know that He is God. I know He's moving all things toward their providential end. And because that's the case, I'm left in a particular posture. Namely, praise. I remember hearing one pastor years ago preaching on this text. I mean, I'm talking about like 20 years ago. But I, I, I love it. I mean, he, he was preaching all the way through Romans 9 to 11. And this was when I was in a church where they would like spend a Sunday on a verse kind of thing. Like 40 minutes on one verse. And we're going to work through this. So we're talking about months going through Romans 9, 10, and 11. And then when he got to the, 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 the doxology, he said, And just at the t- point when we want to pull out our hair theologically, Paul wants you to pull out your hymnal. I thought that was a nice turn of phrase, right? Pull out your hymnal. Because right when you're like, I just can't put all the pieces together, Paul says, exactly, and let's sing about it. right? Now, and what's, what is he singing about? He's singing about the wisdom of God. He's singing about the wealth of God. That's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? The wealth of God, which I think has to do with the wealth of his knowledge, right? Let me see about the wisdom, the wealth, the power of God. And I think this is really important because I think this is at the heart of Paul's logic here. Paul wants us in our praise of God to hold together all the facets of God's being and the singularity of his person. In other words, if all you have, think about this, if all you have is the wisdom of God, the power of God, the omniscience of God, that leaves us, by the way, rightly in a posture of absolute terror. The wisdom, the knowledge, the power of God alone leave us in a complete posture of terror. And this is one of, one of my favorite theologians. Karl Barth, I think, is really helpful because Bart encourages us when you think about the wisdom of God, always think about the wisdom of God in light of the patience of God. God is patient and He's wise. He's wise and He's patient. When you think about the love of God, you think about the holiness of God. The holiness of God and the love of God are not competing God's I'm gonna act according to my holiness now. I'm gonna act according to my love now. That that's very human thinking about how we operate. The God always operates in the singularity of his being, and he is wise and he's patient. And and I think this is where Paul is talking about the nation of Israel. They've rejected, yes. The God is wise and he's patient. It's his character to do so. And we're gonna praise him for it because his thoughts are inscrutable. I mean, it's I mean we know this. But it's just not within our purview to start connecting the dots of our lives or our providence and think that we can move toward a natural end. Remember the William Cooper hymn? God is his own best interpreter and he will make it plain. That's a great turn of phrase. We're we're not the best interpreters of God and his providence. But God is the best interpreter of his own providence and in time he will make it plain. So you see all these, these terms here his, his knowledge, his wisdom, his power, his unsearchable judgments, his unscrutable ways. Verse 34, and I, which would be really good to talk about, but I know I'm losing time. Um, it's interesting to me that here at this point in time, um, uh, Paul begins to quote the book of Job. I think it's interesting because this hymn right here is born out of grief. I really believe that's a helpful and an important way of contextualizing what Paul's doing. This is born out of Paul's grief. And Job's doxology and praise is born out of his own grief as well. In other words, Paul understands himself here in terms of the story of Moses and Job. He's wrapped up in this. I like that, by the way, because Paul is doing what some theologians called living intratextually. Um, He understands what it means for the Bible, not just to be a resource for him, but it's actually the world in which he inhabits. That's his world. That's his story. And he makes sense of the events of his own life from the standpoint of the character and the content of the the whole, whole of the Bible. So he quotes Job, who's known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? Who's given God a gift to him that he might be repaid? There's no quid pro quo with God. God never is seeking any counsel from anybody. No one's been His counselor. And if you remember this in Job, this is the kind of part that makes us a little uncomfortable, but God's a little snarky with Job. Right? And where were you when I laid the foundations of the world, Job? And all of your... I've been listening to you now for 30 plus chapters. And and here I am. And I just got to tell you, Job, it's not been all that impressive. Where were you when the foundations of the world were laid? Oh, you remember Behemoth and Leviathan? Uh, they're they're like they're like um, little chihuahuas to me. That's that's the gentle translation on that. Um, like I, I play catch with them. You, if you even met a behemoth or a leviathan, um, you would you would fall down dead. So you have this sort of snarky side of God that really is a gift of God's grace to Job, to let him know um, that he can rest assured in the fact that even though Job may not know all the significance or the cause of the events of his life that his God is in control and he is near. Um I was having a conversation and I'll I'll close with this. I was having a conversation with one of my children who'll go unnamed on the way to church today. Um and it, and it really wasn't a very healthy. Um but you know it was happening. Um and I'll put that on me. But here here we were in the car and we were talking about um um authority. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I said to this child who will go unnamed, one of the great gifts of being your age is that you never, ever have to trouble yourself with the complicated thoughts of why an authority has asked you to do something. (laughs) You just just don't have to do that. Um, I mean, there's like, if if your algebra teacher says, I want you to show your work, even if you know the answer, you show your work because you never need to ask, why does she want me to do that? And if I tell you on a Sunday morning, we don't turn on the TV, right, we're not doing that on a Sunday morning, you never have to worry about why I've asked you to do that. Never. You just need to do it, right. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. Um, all of that to say, I think that's kind of where God is leaving us here. And, and, and the response, and I'm not sure my son's response will be this way, um, But I think the response that that Job and that that Paul want us to have in light of that is really a kind of exhale (laughs) of gratitude and thanksgiving that God is providentially moving all things in our lives and in the world toward his own redemptive end. And even when we're in the middle of the cacophony of it all and the distress of it all and we can't sort it all out, which I don't know about your story, but in my story, it's more often than not. I can't sort out all the pieces. Where are we left? Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His ways are unscrutable. His mind's not like our mind. There's no analogy. There's no analogical thinking that moves from our thought process to God's thought process. He is beyond our ways. And... We wed all of that to the fact that it's that self-same God who in Romans 8.32 said, and He handed over His Son for us so that we could be near Him and so that we can be in relationship to Him. The all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God is the self-same One who has revealed Himself to us in the Son on a cross, in an empty tomb so that we can be in personal relationship with Him. And Paul here in Romans 11 wants you to know that's something worth giving thanks over. That's something worth praising. And when you enter into that kind of praise you can see the idols starting to sort of melt away. Lord help us as we enter into this season even in, in this month of November, um, which is a season in our culture. it's kind of hallmarky but it's a gift of, of thanksgiving. And I pray Lord that you will that you'll move us by your grace into a place of gratitude knowing that really gratitude is the only response that we have to those who have been the recipients of your grace, what else can we do? We can't pay you back. But we can stand before you and tell you that we're thankful. And we're thankful with our lips, and we want to be thankful in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.